chapter 21. On May the 6th, 1845, Frederick Douglass uh, delivered a speech in New York City entitled, My Slave Experience in Maryland. This was a fairly courageous thing for Douglass to do. Because as he acknowledged, he was still considered a man's property under federal law. Uh, And there were many who believed that fugitive slaves like him should be returned by any who found them to their masters. Uh, In fact, five years later, the Fugitive Slave Slave Act would be passed that required all fugitive slaves to be captured and returned to their masters even if they were in states where slavery had been outlawed. But Douglas spoke that night, and here's just a little snippet uh, of him recounting some of his slave experience there in Maryland. He said, We had on the plantation an overseer by the name of Austin Gore, a man who was highly respected as an overseer, proud, ambitious, cruel, artful, obdurate. Nearly every slave stood in the utmost horror and dread of that man. His eye flashed confusion amongst them. He never spoke but to command, nor commanded but to be obeyed. He was lavish with the whip and sparing with his word. I have seen that man tie up men by the two hands and for two hours at intervals ply the lash. I have seen women stretched up on the limbs of trees, their bare backs made bloody with the lash. One slave refused to be whipped by him, and I need not tell you that he was a man, though black his features and degraded his condition. He had committed some trifling offense, for they whip for trifling offenses. And that slave refused to be whipped, and he ran. He did not stand to and fight his master, as I did once, and might do again, though I hope I shall not have occasion to do so. But he ran and stood in a creek and refused to come out. At length, his master told him that he would shoot him if he did not come out. Three calls were to be given him. The first, the second, and the third were given, at each of which the slave stood his ground. Gore, equally determined and firm, raised his musket And in an instant, poor Derby was no more. He sank beneath the waves, and naught but the crimsoned waters marked the spot. Then a general outcry was heard amongst us, and Mr. Lloyd asked Gore why he had resorted to such a cruel measure. He replied coolly that he had done it from necessity, that the slave was setting a dangerous example, and that if he was permitted to be corrected and yet save his life, the slaves would effectually rise and be freemen and their masters be slaves. His defense was satisfactory. He remained on the plantation. His fame went abroad. He still lives in St. Michael's in Talbot County in Maryland and is now, I presume, as much respected as though his guilty soul had never been stained with his brother's blood. He said, my own wife had a dear cousin who was terribly mangled in her sleep while nursing the child of a Mrs. Hicks. Finding the girl asleep, Mrs. Hicks beat her to death with a billet of wood, and the woman has never been brought to justice for this. 
It is not a crime to kill a Negro in Talbot County, Maryland, farther than it is a deprivation of a man's property. I used to know of one who boasted that he had killed two slaves, and with an oath he would say, I'm the only benefactor in the country. So over the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be dealing with the issue of slavery. Uh, We are continuing to study the book of the covenant. This is Exodus 20, verse 19, through the end of Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verse 33. You'll remember we saw that God spoke audibly, terrifyingly, the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. And such a booming voice that the people pleaded for Moses to be a go-between, between them and God. And then Moses received from God this book of the covenant. A book of laws that were teaching Israel how to apply the Ten Commandments to their life as a nation. And we saw last time at the end of Exodus 20 that the very first subject which God addresses in this book of the covenant is the subject of his worship. And specifically, laws concerning his altars. The very places where Israelites came to meet with God and to call on his name. Well, as we come to Exodus chapter 21, we might be surprised to find that the very next subject that God addresses in the book of the covenant is laws concerning Slavery. More accurately, what we find is a list of laws helping Israel apply the sixth and the seventh and the eighth commandments to life in Israel. But it appears that slavery was a significant part of life in Israel, and many of these laws here in chapter 21 deal directly with that subject. And that raises issues. Uh, Slavery in Israel raises issues. Uh, It raised issues that divided this nation in the days leading up to the Civil War. And still today, this issue is one of the primary arguments that secularists and skeptics use to discredit the Bible. How can Christianity be good and the Bible be trustworthy? If it condones slavery. How can the Bible be good. When it not only condones slavery. But actually commands slavery. In places. These are the kinds of arguments that are made. And they're made often. Especially in colleges and universities. And they're used to attack Christianity. And the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot for us to work through here. I want us to begin by looking at verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to note two other passages in the chapter as well. First look at Exodus 21 beginning in verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. Then the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. 
But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Look down at verse 20. Verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And then look at verse 26. Verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Okay, so at no other time did Christians think more about what the Bible says concerning slavery than in the days leading up to and during the Civil War. And so here is our plan for these three messages. Uh, First, I want to give us some history to help us understand the debate as it was going on in our country at that time. Second, we're going to look at the reasons at why so many Christians... Uh, in both the South and the North, defended the institution of slavery. And we're going to see what were the scriptural arguments they used to try and defend the practice of slavery. Third, we're going to look at the arguments that were used by those Christians who spoke against slavery and what their arguments were from Scripture. Then fourth, we're going to deal with a deeper issue that I think was underneath the whole debate Fifth, we're going to come back to these verses and we're going to work through them one by one, talk about what they mean, try and understand their teaching. And finally, we're going to sum up how we as Christians should respond to those who would attack Christianity on the basis of the Bible's teaching concerning slavery. So that's the plan for the next three Sunday nights. So let's begin uh, with making sure we understand our history on this subject and make sure we understand the debate as it was going on. So slavery goes way back in the history of our land, just as it goes way back in the history of pretty much every populated place uh, on the earth. Uh, Many Native American tribes practiced slavery before Columbus ever discovered the New World. And Native American tribes continued to practice slavery even up till the point of the Civil War. Uh, Native Americans owned other Native Americans. And then once European contact was made, uh, Native Americans participated in the African slave trade. And there were some Native Americans who owned black slaves as well. 
So you had the Native Americans that were here. Uh, the Spanish were the first to come along with a true and lasting settlement. Uh, the Spanish had already made their presence known in the Caribbean. And in their search for gold, they came to Florida. Uh, Ponce de Leon claimed Florida for Spain in 1513. St. Augustine was established as the first European settlement in 1565. So this is more than 40 years before the English come to Jamestown. And already from the beginning, slavery was a part of those Spanish settlements. Uh, The Spanish sometimes captured and enslaved Native Americans, but because the Spanish were already doing a great deal of work on the Caribbean islands, the Spanish were bringing African slaves to the New World. Uh, The Spanish were bringing African slaves to the Caribbean islands and to South America and also to their settlements there in Florida. The English, the French, the Dutch... Uh, They all tried their hands at creating settlements in the New World. Uh, The English primarily used indentured servants at the beginning, uh, folks who agreed to serve for a number of years in order to pay for their passage to the New World. Uh, My own ancestor was a guy named Nicholas Neal, and he was from Cornwall, England, and he was a tailor, but he became an indentured servant. And he was brought to Virginia in the early 1700s as an indentured servant. And he had to work for several years to pay off the debt of his passage to the New World before he went on and got married and had his own place there in Virginia. This year, 2019, marks the 400th anniversary of the first African slaves being brought into the English colonies. And the way that happened is that Dutch traders captured a Spanish slave ship. So I already mentioned the Spanish were using African slaves down in the Caribbean islands and into Florida. Well, the Dutch traders captured a Spanish slave ship. They then came to Jamestown and the English in Jamestown purchased the slaves that had been captured off of that Spanish ship. But these first slaves did not experience slavery as it later existed. Uh, the settlers there in Jamestown, Jamestown had only existed not, uh, 10 years at this point uh, or so. And so these settlers gave these Africans a Christian baptism. They gave them Christian names and then they pronounced them indentured servants. And they were actually freed after a period of service was done. And even treated somewhat as equals once their time of servitude was done. For example, Anthony Johnson is the English name that was given to an African man who was captured by a rival African tribe and then sold into slavery. He made it into Virginia as a slave in 1621, but was declared an indentured servant. He finished his term of work. This African man became a free citizen a property owner, and he went on to own slaves himself. My point is this. At this point in American history, slavery existed in this nation, but it was not seen as a racial institution. It was not a a racial thing, at least among the English at this point. Even those Africans who had been forcibly enslaved by rival tribes in Africa and then bought by the English, they were declared indentured servants, 
and they were freed after finishing their terms of service. The plantation system begins to take root in the South. A plantation was simply taking the way of life of another country and planting it in this country. And so the English began transplanting their way of life to America. That included wealthy landowners who profited by having their land worked by laborers. And so early on, many of the plantation owners in the colonies didn't even live in America. This was actually particularly true here in North Carolina. Uh, A lot of the early land that was owned in the colony of North Carolina was owned by folks in England. And then they had people here that managed the land and worked the land for them. It was hard work and finding laborers could be difficult. And thus, like the Spanish, the English got into the slave trading business. Now, the slave trade had been happening in England for some time. Uh, You remember John Newton, uh, author of Amazing Grace. He was, was, for a while, the captain of a slave trading ship. And he was doing that for England before he was saved and became a pastor. But now, the slave trade became a source of laborers for the plantation owners in the South. I think it's worth pointing out that the shipping companies, the shipping companies that went to Africa, purchased these slaves from tribal peoples and brought them to America and then sold them, most of those were based in the North. Uh, 80% of the slave ships were operated out of Rhode Island, and actually the other 20% were operated out of Massachusetts. Uh, Rhode Island was seen as the center of the slave trade shipping industry, and then Massachusetts gave them a little competition. So when a ship full of slaves landed in Charleston, South Carolina, it was Southerners that were buying the slaves, but it was Northerners who were selling them. And that was how the slave trade worked. Uh, Historian Lorenzo Green says, the effects of the New England slave trade were momentous. It was one of the foundations of New England's economic structure. It created a wealthy class of slave-trading merchants, while the profits derived from this commerce stimulated cultural development and philanthropy. In other words, in New England, the northeastern part of our country, uh, there were a number of people who were becoming quite wealthy based on the business of shipping, trading slaves. Well, increasingly, an economy was being set up where slave labor in the South provided the goods that industry in the North needed to refine and to sell. So there was an intrinsic connection between the refining of goods and the selling of goods in the North and the uh, procuring of the resources needed for that from the South. Uh, This was so true that when the southern states began to secede in the 1800s, the mayor of New York City urged that his city should join the Confederacy as well. Uh, The reason the mayor of New York City said that is because there was a clear connection between the South and Wall Street. Um, The slave labor in the South provided the cotton that had become indispensable, not just to the North, but even to England and other countries. And so there was some hypocrisy here. Uh, Even after England and many of the northern states had outlawed slavery, they continued to benefit from it. 
In fact, Rhode Island and Massachusetts kept sending their slave ships to Africa and made money off the slave trade long after slavery had been outlawed in those states. So the point is this. Whether you look to the north or to the south, this United States was built as a young nation on the back of African slaves. It just was. Okay? This nation found prosperity, found growth on the back of African slaves. Now, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, the abolitionist movement began to really grow. This was not a Christian movement. It was a political movement. Put simply, the United States had won her independence from England... And the United States had declared that all men have God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And people were beginning to see the hypocrisy of that. Uh, When you look at what most of the abolitionists were saying, it was fundamentally built on the principles of which this nation was founded. Patrick Henry famously said, give me liberty or give me death. How can we as a nation celebrate liberty while maintaining that some men should be kept as slaves? And so the abolitionist movement kept saying, look at our principles. We say we celebrate freedom. How can we have slaves? The abolitionist movement especially grew in the north because there were fewer slaves in the north. And so turning against slavery did not cost northerners as much in the short term as it cost Southerners. Uh, The livelihoods of people in the North were not directly built on slavery. Courageous runaway slaves like Frederick Douglass were showing up in the North and they began to speak and to make clear just how abusive slavery had become in some parts of the South. And the stories that men like Douglass told began to win the hearts of many. And one by one, you began to see the Northern states outlawing slavery. But there was a group of people that found it hard to join the abolitionist movement. And that was Bible-believing Christians. Uh, Bible-believing Christians, there were a lot of them in the United States at this time, especially thanks to the First and the Second Great Awakenings. By the time you get to the Civil War, about 40% of the country was what we might would call evangelicals today. Uh, There were some liberal Christians, especially the Unitarians, especially in the north. There were some Roman Catholics. Uh, Think about the Maryland area. There was a growing number of Jews. But the largest religious group in the country during the time leading up to the Civil War was evangelical Protestants. And these Bible-believing Christians, um, well, their knee-jerk reaction was to say, what does the Bible say about this issue? And the vast majority of Bible-believing Christians leading up to the Civil War held the position that slavery was a biblical institution. How many Christians today would say slavery is a biblical institution? How many Christians today would say, oh yes, the Bible teaches slavery and treat it as a good thing? But that was the overwhelming view of Bible-believing Christians in 1860. So for the remainder of the night, I'm going to show you why they thought that way. 
Um, but I want to be clear. So this is me being very clear. If you only hear tonight, you might leave thinking that I think American slavery was good and biblical. I want to be clear. I do not think American slavery was good or biblical. I do not think American slavery was good or biblical. I do not think that American slavery was good or biblical. The problem is time. I get to present one side of it tonight, and I have to wait till next time, present the other side, unless y'all want to be here till 8 o'clock rather than 7 o'clock. Okay? One side of an argument can sound good until you hear the other side. So the other side is next week. Okay? All right. So why were so many Christians defending slavery? Um, I do think this is important for us to see because we live in a day when people no longer see this as a complex issue. Uh, We tend to look back on slave owners and slavery supporters of the past as if they were just pure evil. We we just wonder, how could anybody be so terrible and hateful as to think that this was, was something they should do? We look back at some of the godly heroes in American history and think, how could somebody believe this and preach this and teach these glorious things about Christ and own slaves, as many of them did? And so we no longer seem to have much sympathy for their position, for their time in history. But I think if we put ourselves in their shoes, we see the issue was way more difficult for them than we might like to admit. So what were the Christian arguments that defended slavery? Well, first, there were two acknowledgments that were made. And particularly when you look at the sermons that were being preached in the churches at this time, the 1800s, okay, you hear these two acknowledgments over and over. The first one was this, the Bible forbids kidnapping. Uh, The Bible forbids capturing people and selling them. Look at Exodus 21, verse 16. Exodus 21, verse 16. And what God says to Israel there. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall what? Be put to death. That is not unclear. Uh, These laws are God helping Israel apply the Ten Commandments to their new nation. And because of the Sixth Commandment, which honors life, and because of the Eighth Commandment, which teaches us not to steal, God said to Israel, kidnapping people and selling them is evil. And this is why in the late 1700s over in England, you had John Newton and you had William Wilberforce, and they were working to say, Christians, we need to lead the way in ending the slave trade. We need to lead the way in saying we ought not to be kidnapping and selling people. And as Christians in the U.S. began to think about this question and go to the Bible, they also became convinced that the slave trade was wicked. When the Confederacy was founded as a nation, the slave trade was outlawed in its constitution. So the South was not arguing to continue the slave trade. In fact, the slave trade had been made illegal by states in the South a long time before the Civil War came to be. 
In fact, the North was still profiting on slave ships when the South had already outlawed the slave trade. That was obviously and clearly sinful. Bible-believing Christians knew it. You do not kidnap people. You do not sell them. The second acknowledgement that you see in sermon after sermon is that slaves were never to be abused. Uh, You hear this theme again and again as Christian preachers taught their congregations about slavery. Look at Exodus 21 verse 26 again. Exodus 21 verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So the Bible presents a kind of slavery where the dignity of the person is still to be preserved. And if the slave is truly physically harmed, he or she is to be set free. The Bible does not tolerate abusive slavery. Uh, One of the most common refrains in the Old Testament law is for Israel to remember that she too had once been slaves in Egypt. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 15, when God gives instructions again about how to treat slaves, he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Considered the greatest biblical scholar in America in his day, Moses Stewart. He lived in Massachusetts, by the way. He made a very powerful and at that time eloquent argument that slavery was an appropriate Christian institution. But he was also equally clear that in his view it must never be abusive. And so he spoke against those slave owners who would break up the marriages of their slaves, separating husbands from wives. Uh, He decried those wicked slave owners who sexually abused their slaves. States had laws that sought to regulate the treatment of slaves. For example, an Alabama state law from 1833 said any person who shall maliciously dismember or deprive a slave of life shall suffer such punishment as would be inflicted in case the like offense had been committed on a free white person. In other words, if you did something that injured your slave in any way, you had to receive the same punishment as if you had injured any other person in that way. Now, sadly, those laws weren't always enforced. They were there. And Bible-believing Christians increasingly declared that the abuse of slaves was inappropriate and it was often sounded in the sermons of Christian preachers. So with those acknowledgments, the slave trade is evil, you should never abuse your slave, Here were the arguments that Christians continued to turn to about why they thought slavery was a biblical institution to be preserved. I think I have six of them. Okay. Number one, Scripture never condemns slavery. From Genesis to Revelation, nowhere in Scripture do you find a command saying that slavery is immoral. In fact, you have something different. Commands given about how masters are to treat their slaves and how slaves are to relate to their masters. 
the Baptist pastor, Richard Fuller, responded to a man who had declared that slavery was contrary to the gospel. And Richard Fuller, he pointed to these New Testament passages that regulated slavery. Talking about these passages about how a master should treat a slave and a slave should treat his master. And he said, here then we have the author of the gospel, that's Jesus, the inspired propagators of the gospel, that's the apostles, and the Holy Spirit inspiring the writing of the gospel, all conniving at a practice which was a violation of the entire moral principle of the gospel. In other words, he said, how can you make the argument that slavery is anti-gospel when Jesus, the heart of the gospel, the apostles, the preachers of the gospel, and the Spirit, the one who inspired the writing of the gospel, all gave these instructions about slavery and owning slaves and how masters and slaves are to relate to each other. He said, surely Jesus, the Spirit, and the apostles weren't anti-gospel. So Scripture never condemns slavery. Second, um, Abraham, the father of the faithful, owned slaves. Often in the sermons defending slavery from the 1800s, you see pastors pointing to Father Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 12, God speaks to Abraham, and he, God even speaks to Abraham about his slaves. Does God say, Abraham, you need to free your slaves? No. God tells him to circumcise his male slaves. Surely, if slavery was this great moral evil, wouldn't God have told Abraham to free his slaves? And he didn't. So slavery must be appropriate. That's how the argument went. The third argument that was made. This one is just completely wrong in every way, by the way. But next week, God had declared that the Africans would be slaves. Was increasingly believed as you get further along towards the Civil War and tensions got higher and people settled into their positions. It was, began to be believed that God had declared that Africans would be slaves. And here's how the argument went. Do you remember when Noah, when Noah got drunk and went in his tent and exposed himself? You have to remember, Noah's tent was not like his personal bedroom. It was, a, it was a semi-public place, a place where people came in and came out. And when Noah's son, Ham, saw his father this way, instead of covering him up, instead of protecting his father's modesty, Ham went to his brothers and joked about it. He delighted in his father's shame. And so later, when Noah sobers up and he finds out what had happened... He pronounces a curse on Ham. And the curse said that the descendants of, of Ham would be servants in the tents of his brother's descendants. Well, the Africans are descended from Ham. Europeans are descended from Ham's brother Japheth. So it only makes sense that we should find the descendants of Ham serving the descendants of Japheth. That was the argument. God had declared that Africans would be slaves. Number four, the argument was made that Scripture expected God's people to have slaves. In fact, God so expected his people to have slaves that he even included slavery in his Ten Commandments. 
Remember the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant. The word servant there, by the way, is the same word for slave or bond servant. And so the argument was made if slavery is such a great moral evil... How could God include slavery as a practice in his glorious summary of the moral law? The Ten Commandments is where you're supposed to look to say, what is the way of good? What is the way of that which is right? The fifth argument was often made. God actually commanded Israel to take foreign slaves. God actually commanded Israel to take foreign slaves. And this is one of the hardest texts for us to come to grips with in the Bible, I think, on this subject. Uh, It's Deuteronomy 20. I'll start reading in verse 10. Uh, You can look or just listen. Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, Then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves." You shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So you see, God didn't just seem to be allowing slavery. He actually commanded that if a city made terms of peace, the people were to be taken as slaves and put to the work of forced labor. And if the city resisted those terms of peace, all of the men were to be killed by the sword and the women and children were to be taken as plunder. Now this is the God who is holy, holy, holy. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the the Prince of Peace. How can you reconcile being anti-slavery with passages like this where the good God of the Bible commanded slavery. That was the fifth argument that was often made. Sixth argument. Paul sent an escaped slave back to his master. Paul sent an escaped slave back to his master. So in the book of Philemon... You have an escaped slave named Onesimus. Onesimus has become a Christian. Onesimus is with Paul. And what does Paul do? He sends Onesimus back to his master. And this was in Roman times, during Roman slavery, thought by many to be one of the worst kinds of slavery in history. But instead of Paul telling Onesimus to remain a runaway slave, he sends him back. This comes out again and again and again in the sermons during the time of the Civil War 
because people argued a lot about fugitive slaves. What do you do with runaway slaves? And this was the text that Christians used to say, look, if Paul sent this Christian slave back to his master, how can we as Christians say we're doing the right thing if we don't return slaves to their masters? Okay, so just think about those six arguments uh, that clearly the Bible does not condemn slavery. In fact, the Bible seems pretty strongly to sanction slavery. 1820, the Richmond Inquirer made the case this way. Number one, the Bible is the word of God. Number two, because the Bible is the word of God, it is the ultimate authority on matters of truth. Number three, therefore, whatever the Bible deems to be lawful is essentially so. If God has said it is lawful, it is lawful. Number four, because God is perfect in wisdom and knowledge and goodness, to protest against what he has declared lawful is irresponsible and arrogant. Number five, the Bible very clearly declares that slaveholding is lawful. So that's how the argument was published in the Richmond Inquirer in 1820. And they were saying it is against God, it is against the Bible, it is against Christianity to say that slavery is unlawful. Is that logical? Do you see a chink anywhere in that chain of reasoning? So actually, let me close with the last two arguments. I said there were six. Apparently there were eight. The last two arguments that were made, okay? The last two arguments that were made. These were, the reason I had these two a little bit different, these were not biblical arguments or textual arguments, but they are arguments that Christians used on biblical principles again and again to say that freeing the slaves was a bad idea. So here was their next argument. African Americans in the North are far worse off. You hear that again and again. Uh, The argument was freeing the slaves, and if the South adopted the economic system of the North, that would actually be cruel to the slaves. Because the North had embraced a truly capitalistic system Many Christians, especially in the South at that time, were actually not very happy about that. Uh, They saw that the capitalistic system of the North seemed to run on greed and that often those who were at the top caused the workers to labor for very little money in terrible conditions. Very quickly, the cities in the North were forming ghettos with very poor and alien populations, including many blacks. At least most slave owners in the South were required by state laws to provide housing and food and medicine and even wages for their slaves. There were even laws regulating the amount of time that slaves could be forced to work. And so for many in the South, they believed that the slaves were much better off in the South than the freed blacks in the North. And here is the really telling point. While the northern states were outlawing slavery, 
the northern states were also increasing their restrictions on black people. So remember how the earliest black slaves were treated as indentured servants, and then once their time of service was done, they were treated as as fellow citizens, right? Did you know that actually early in the colonies and early American history, black men had the right to vote before they lost the right to vote, before they regained their right to vote? The northern states began taking away the voting rights of black men. So let me read from, from one writer about the situation for blacks as it existed in the North. He says, As far back as 1717, citizens of New London, Connecticut, in a town meeting, voted their objection to free blacks living in the town or owning land anywhere in the colony. So that year, 1717, the Colonial Assembly passed a law in accordance with this sentiment prohibiting free blacks or mulattoes, half black, half white, from residing in any town in the colony. It also forbade them to buy land. It forbade them to go into business without the consent of the town. And the provisions were retroactive, so that if any black person had managed to buy land, their deed was rendered void. And a black resident of a town, no matter how long he had been there, was now subject to prosecution at the discretion of the town's leaders. Massachusetts, in 1788, prescribed flogging as the punishment for non-resident blacks who stayed more than two months. Less than four months after its congressmen voted against the restrictions on black settlement in the Missouri Compromise, Massachusetts set up a legislative committee to investigate such legislation for its own sake. From 1813 to 1852, Pennsylvania was constantly debating the exclusion of blacks under pressure of petitions from the counties along the Mason-Dixon line. Like the black codes of the South and the Midwest in the 19th century, enforcement of northern colonial race laws was selective, but their real value lay in harassment and discouragement of further settlement and in being a constant reminder to free blacks that their existence was precarious and dependent on white toleration. Across the north, such laws were the sword that hung above the heads of a whole black population. Step out of line, make one false move, and you could be shipped out or sold into slavery in the south. You would not have the right to face your white accusers in court, as you would, say, in Louisiana. Many southern slaves, perhaps the mass of them, lived better than most northern industrial laborers when you quantify their work requirements, their nutrition, and their life expectancy. And so uh, this morning in Sunday school, Pastor Merle quoted Alexis de Tocqueville, I guess maybe how you say it. Um, This Frenchman came and visited the early, the young United States and wrote about his experiences. And here was his report. He said, the Negro in the North is free, but he cannot share the rights, the pleasures, labors, griefs, or even the tomb of him whose equal he has been been declared. There is nowhere where he can meet him, neither in life nor in death. In the South, where slavery still exists, less trouble is taken to keep the Negro apart. They sometimes share the labors and the pleasures of the white men. People are prepared to mix with them to some extent. Legislation is more harsh against them, but customs are more tolerant and gentle. 
And so this was a, a very prevalent argument leading up to the Civil War. Uh, until we can find a better economic system to just suddenly end slavery and say the slaves, you're free, was basically to condemn them in the eyes of many to poverty. Uh, to have them starving, to have them not have the ability to survive. Is that a good argument? Do you have a response to that argument? And then finally, number eight, and this was the critical one. The attack on slavery was actually an attack on the Bible. That is the way many Christians saw it leading up to the Civil War. The abolitionist movement drove Christians to solidify their support for slavery because many abolitionists were openly attacking the Bible. In other words, what made this particularly difficult for Christians at that time is that the same people in America who were leading the charge to end slavery were also leading the charge against Christianity and against the Bible. This wasn't like in England where you had Newton and Wilberforce leading the charge against the slave trade. This was um, agnostics and very liberal Unitarian Christians, Christians who were leading the march against slavery. So, for example, William Lloyd Garrison was an abolitionist leader, and he wrote this in a newspaper. He said, to say that everything contained within the lids of the Bible is divinely inspired, and to insist that this is fundamentally important is to give utterance to a bold fiction and to require the suspension of the reasoning faculties. To say that everything in the Bible is to be believed simply because it's found in that volume is equally absurd and pernicious. So put simply, abolitionists were calling for a new way of reading the Bible. A way of reading the Bible that paid less attention to what it actually said and simply harnessed the spirit of the Bible. A lot of these liberal abolitionist leaders talked about, well, don't worry about what the text says. Just let's keep the spirit of the Bible. Well, Bible-believing Christians saw that that was dangerous. And because they saw slavery taught in the Bible, they believed the anti-slavery movement was actually a guise for something else. An attack on Christianity itself and an attempt to remove the Christian foundations of the American nation. And so you have one Methodist minister preaching to his Confederate audience in 1862. And he says, your cause is the cause of God in the cause of Christ and of humanity. It is a conflict of truth with error, of Bible with northern infidelity, of pure Christianity with northern fanaticism. So this was how Christian Confederates saw themselves. They saw themselves as defending the Bible and their rights to live as faithful Christians against a northern anti-Christian aggression. So, I hope you at least see why this issue was not cut and dry for probably many of your forefathers, many of your ancestors. This was not something where, like it is for us, where we just say, well, obviously slavery was terrible. For them, that was not an easy thing to see based on the arguments that we've just gone over. And so next time, we're going to look at the arguments that were being made by, honestly, a small minority of Bible-believing Christians against the practice of slavery. 
And then we're going to look at what I think is actually the deeper moral issue that was underneath all of this and why I do not believe that American slavery was good or biblical. Questions? In uh, the time leading up to the Civil War, uh, Moses Stewart, the fellow I, I quoted earlier, he was looked at as the most learned sort of theologian. He was, you know, who, who, were, the, who were the preachers reading? Who were the preachers paying attention to? He, he would be an example of that. And a lot of people, um, uh, the, the book that I use most in looking at this is by a guy named Martin Knoll. Uh, it's called The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. And what he does is he, he basically studied the, the sermons preached by all kinds of people during the Civil War and leading up to the Civil War to see what was going on in the hearts and minds and what was going on in the pulpits of Christians that would explain these things. And he makes it sound like that there were a lot of people who were eager to say, what is Moses Stewart going to think about this? And that he was someone who, when he spoke from Massachusetts, you know, he, he is, is a Yankee, and yet he said, biblically, you know, I, I believe the Bible supports slavery done right, right? Not abusive and those things. Um, that, that did have a lot of influence on, on Bible-believing Christians in the day. Um, at some point, maybe we'll talk about Spurgeon and his, his visit to America. Because Spurgeon was anti-slavery, and, uh, and there were death threats against Spurgeon uh, when he was coming to, to preach in America. Uh, because he was against slavery and some Christians in America thought that he had compromised and given in to an unbiblical worldview. And uh, so that's a whole other discussion for another day. It's very interesting, I think. Was the, the slavery thing for against kind of like the politics of the day of the Republican and yeah, you, you want to address that, Brad, about the two, uh, about the parties? I mean, you had Lincoln's party, and, but he, which was the, it's, it's Democrat, Republican. 